welcome to VB Engage episode 49. My name is Stuart Rogers with VentureBeat, and I am joined as ever by the author of Digital Sense, the marketing technology genius that is Travis Wright. Travis, how are you doing today? I am doing excellent, Mr. Stuart Rogers. Thank you for that kind, wonderful introduction as always. We are in episode 49 because math. I'm glad that you can do math. I do maths. Maths. Um, or mathematics. It's, it's subtly different. Mathematical genius that is Stuart Rogers. That's one of the many things I've been called in my life. Most of the things I've been called in my life are not uh, printable or, you know, something that we would tell the listeners about. I think we've gone 49 episodes and I think maybe three cuss words. Maybe three cuss words. Maybe three it cuss depends words. on your definition of a cuss word, I guess. Well, I know Gary V dropped one because he's Gary V. So that's pretty impressive considering my normal life. I drop a cuss word about every other sentence. Me, every other word, typically. <laughs> which, is, um, which is a very good skill. There's really one big thing that happened this week, essentially, right? Do you know, there is one big thing. And I'm going to tell you, Travis, I don't know about you, I found it confusing and difficult to track this one big thing on Twitter. And I'll tell you why. It was very difficult for me to determine whether people were talking about Facebook's developer conference, which was hashtag F8, or whether everybody was at uh, the movies watching The Fate of the Furious, which mm -hmm. is also hashtag F8. Zuckerberg actually mentioned that in his keynote, like, we had no idea this was happening, so. <laughs> One of those things is kind of a ridiculous thing and defies the laws of gravity. The other one is a car movie. Right. So there was all kinds of stuff that happened this week at F8. Not only are, you know, is Facebook going to be pushing more into augmented reality, but we also have the next phase of its messenger platform, and they're going to have bot support within Workplace, a new virtual reality experience, cameras. It's kind of ridiculous. I mean, let's, let's go through some of the stuff that maybe links in with things we've spoken about before mm -hmm. and builds on, on what marketers and what, uh, you know, startups and, and business owners are going to going to be wanting to think about i mean when we look at like snapchat we've talked so many times about snapchat in the past and they actually launched on the, the first day of f8 um, a brand new augmented reality filter that can determine the surface of objects in the camera really smart beautiful new filters that just look amazing rotate fully around and they're, they're just amazing they're incredible you know and, and literally like an hour later facebook are launching a whole bunch of brand new augmented reality uh, platform stuff based around the camera being the first augmented reality platform. Um, I'm convinced now at this point, Travis, that Facebook are using their artificial intelligence to speed up the rate at which they copy Snapchat. Right. And then Snapchat was like, okay, we're going to steal some thunder from F8 and Facebook. We're going to drop this today. And, uh, and then, whoops. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not the best day to release news about your uh, augmented reality, new filters and whatnot <laughs> on the day that it, Facebook is dropping mics. But it's an interesting thing. You know, we're, we're, we're talking about this augmented reality. We're talking about cameras, talking about content. The thing here is that what Facebook are doing is they've realized that what Snapchat does so well is create engaging content, engaging user-generated content. And the more users can create amazing content that brings other people in and that tells stories, the more you can sell advertising around it. Facebook aren't silly. That's why they're copying Snapchat, right? That's, it's an advertising play, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. But uh, Snapchat, the ratings on the App Store this past week, they dropped to one star because in India, they were actually confusing Snapdeal with Snapchat. 
and there was a whole bunch of people just giving it one star. So yeah, and then of course you know the other thing that we've talked about a lot with our focus on on artificial intelligence this year, you know how that really is going to change marketing, how it's changing customer support and service. We've done research at BB Insights, so we know that people are buying stuff through chatbots and doing it, you know, with much more regularity. People are spending money through these things, and we mentioned time and time and time again, you know, how many chatbots have been built. I mean, I, th- I remember the first time we used numbers, Travis, around uh, Facebook's chatbots. It was um, just a few months after they opened up the platform in April last year. And already there was 11,000 chatbots. I, I believe we announced that at uh, Mobile Beat in, mm-hmm. in San Francisco. And then it was 18,000 chatbots. And then it was 34,000 chatbots. And now Facebook have announced there's over 100,000 chatbots. But we were always talking about the one thing, which is, you know, it's great to have all those chatbots, but how on earth do you find them? When Whenever we've picked up Facebook and their chatbots, we've always talked about the discoverability issue. But... I understand that they uh, announced they're going to fix that, right? Last year at F8, they launched the uh, initial Messenger platform. Now they are launching the Messenger platform 2.0. That's going to include chat extensions and also tabs dedicated to the exploration of bots and local businesses and also custom integration with apps uh, as well. So it looks like basically they just sort of pulled back, regrouped a little bit, worked on their strategy, figured out a better way to do things because... The bots were growing in numbers. We've talked about this in the past where over time the retention of bots aren't necessarily as high, They, especially like in the 90-day range, then they sort of fall off a cliff. But I think that, that Facebook is doing some things to, to make these more prevalent within our daily lives, right? And so chatbots are a thing. They were a little bit overhyped. And now they're turning their focus more towards discovery because, you know, there's 1.2 billion monthly users that are using Facebook Messenger and there's only 100,000 chatbots. And so that's a lot. There's 60 million businesses that's in their ecosystem. A lot of them are on Messenger, but they don't have a chatbot. You know, we've even had conversations like Larry Kim. He left WordStream to go create Mobile Monkey now, right? So he's working on a whole chatbot deal. Octane AI with Ben Parr. They're working on chatbots. So there's a, there's a lot of companies and a lot of people out there that are working on solving the chatbot problem. And I do think its biggest problem was discoverability. And hopefully with Platform 2.0, that'll solve some of that, Stuart. I welcome it. I think it's uh, it's awesome. Of course, we're seeing Facebook M, which is Facebook's artificial intelligent assistant, get involved in Messenger and you know give suggested responses. Uh, you know, when you type in certain things now within Messenger, you start getting automatic suggestions like pick out certain words and it'll go. You know, do you want to schedule this? If it notices you use the word today, put a time in there. You can click and you can have it schedule things automatically for you, so it will remind you of, of what you're supposed to be doing and. You know, all of those kinds of things. They, they did kind of hold back a little bit, though, and said that uh, they won't necessarily allow group chats and bots to coexist at the moment, which I think is a bit of a shame because that was one of the big selling points uh, for Google Allo, which has not been picked up very well. You know, Allo is, is a nice messaging platform, but just Google don't have that secret source that uh, gets everybody to use their messenger, right? I think because basically they have a very, very confused messaging ecosystem. You never know whether you're supposed to be using Hangouts or Android Messenger or Allo or Duo or 
whatever, whatever is the flavor of the week, new. right? Yeah, right. And they did recently just kill Google Talk, right? So G Talk is is now being finally phased out. So when you have five, six different messenger platforms, that's confusing. They probably should have consolidated those. I was actually having a conversation the other day with someone about Google whenever they launched Google Plus and how it could have been really interesting if they had integrated Google Plus in a social network on their search engine result pages because you could actually leave comments on the search results and upvote things. I mean, they could actually have some really interesting fun with that, but Google does their own thing. They got it all figured out in their own way, and so they're, they seem to be doing okay. Their decisions they've made so far put several billion in the pocket every single year, so tens of billions, actually, almost 100 <laughs> billion. It's crazy. Yeah, it's, it's amazing, and I, I'm really impressed for Facebook have fixed the discoverability issue. Spotify have launched on Facebook Messenger as a chat extension. The Golden State Warriors have got a Messenger bot. Western Union have got a Messenger bot. Yahoo has brought its captain task management bot to Messenger. (laughs) 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 They're bringing all that extra stuff and they're really, as you say, like regrouping and relaunching. I think that's really cool. Another thing that we have been predicting for a while is the launch of consumer-focused 360-degree live streaming camera systems. There are a few out there right now that you can buy for not a lot of money. If you look at the, you know, the price of some of these solutions, they're actually really, really you know, cost-effective. For Samsung recently redesigned their 360-degree camera, making it smaller, making it much more functional, much more consumer-focused. And it's, it's only, you know, I think it's like $300 or something like that. And Facebook have announced a 24-camera professional surround 360 camera and a six-lens consumer version of the, of the same thing, taking them from being, you know, a social network to being a, uh, a camera company um, in the same way that Snapchat went from uh, being a you know, software company to a camera company. You know, Facebook, of course, this is not their first dabble in hardware. They acquired Oculus, right? It's kind of interesting that they're launching that, and it means that we're getting closer to people being able to live stream 360 degrees, and then everyone else can see exactly what's going on in their friends' worlds with a VR headset, which, of course, links nicely to the fact that Facebook also launched Spaces, which is their VR social network, which I think is going to be huge. Even back in the day, 10 years ago, when you're thinking about this, like you get on Second Life and that seems sort of virtual reality-like, right? But it's on a 2D screen. You're looking at uh, on your computer screen. And then also, you know, with things like Minecraft and how you're building these three-dimensional worlds inside or, or using a 2D screen to interact with them. And there was another company, too, that I thought was really phenomenal, but they were really early on when it came to this. It was a company called Mingleverse. Essentially, just like Facebook Spaces is now, because you could pull in video, you could pull in your face through a, a live video stream, you could do a lot of the different things that you're doing now. You built yourself an avatar, and you can have in-person meetings and fake virtual boardrooms. So now, when you can tie in the power of Facebook, you tie in the hardware strength of Oculus, and Brian Solis coined it very nicely. This is kind of what I was thinking as well, is that Facebook is becoming a social operating system for your life and for work. They have Workplace that is coming out that there are several businesses that are using Workplace now. They're going to use chatbots on Workplace. That's their Slack competitor, right? So they're opening up the floodgates for that. I think they said they have 14,000 businesses that are actually using Workplace right now, which is pales into comparison to the 60 million business pages that are on Facebook. But there's some pretty big brands that are using that. And people are interacting, connecting. That's fascinating. But this Facebook Spaces thing, to be able to go into virtual worlds, 
and Stuart have vacations with your friends on your lunch break. <laughs> Listeners, I have to tell you, episode 49 was going so well. And then Travis dropped the vacation bomb. I'm going to get in touch with Apple and suggest that anytime they hear the word vacations, they can go ahead and put that explicit logo next to that. I just think I've done you it know, four times now, which is great. Just the look stop on it. your face, if, if the listeners could see the look on your face whenever I drop the vacation on them, classic. It's it's, like, you're like it's, a sad puppy that just like is lost. <laughs> that's my normal face. You've derailed the whole thing, Travis. Usually you're a Segway master, but you know, I, I don't mean that he's uh, driving Blart. around on a gyroscopic. I am Paul Blart, and I'm in the mall <laughs> every day. Sometimes he wears the badge. We should probably get beyond Facebook because, uh, you know, Facebook have, have really taken the entire episode, and, and rightly so. The developers' conference is a big deal. They mm-hmm. launched a lot of amazing things. If you are in any kind of role where you are a stakeholder for revenue in your business, we have told you time and time again through the research that we've done that, you know, whilst you do need to look beyond Facebook and have more than one place where you acquire people and where you engage with people, you cannot ignore it. It's by far the best place to acquire new users mm-hmm. and the highest quality new users as well. When it comes to B2B or when you're marketing or when you're in sales, a lot of people go, oh man, I'm not going to use Facebook. That's not for business. But we've had so much success using Facebook on B2B advertising to target people at different companies with Facebook ads and videos. It's just unbelievable. And if you are in social selling or if you're in sales and you're doing account-based marketing, Facebook has to be part of your business plan because a lot of times your B2B Facebook page, that content really doesn't get a lot of organic amplification. But that's not really where I see the value is it's taking that great content and then targeting your ideal prospects with that content, with calls to action to kind of bring them in your funnel. Because once they click and and interact with one of your ads, then boom, you can retarget and create all these different custom audiences, which is very, very influential and very important when you are trying to do effective B2B marketing and social selling, which leads us to our interview today. Leads us beautifully to our interview. We should get chatting with none other than John Miller. If anybody knows the B2B world, it's him. So uh, how about we get into it? Let's do it. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a great treat for us today. We have John Miller, who is the CEO and co-founder currently at Engageo, and he was also the co-founder at a little company called Marketo. Welcome to VB Engage, good sir. Hey guys, really excited to talk to you. It's really awesome to have you on. I remember the old Marketo days. I have to admit, I was one of those people that was doing the uh, consulting run, helping other people to put Marketo in. So uh, you should probably pay me a commission at this point, I think. There are a lot of people out there today who have careers around Marketo. That makes me proud. Mm -hmm. For me, it was an awful lot easier than uh, some of the other consulting that I did back in the uh, days of ERP systems. (laughs) That was definitely a nightmare. It's kind of interesting to me. You know, we're we're in this smartphone-driven world. Consumers have smartphones. Business people have smartphones. It doesn't really matter if you're a, a B2C or a B2B organization anymore you've got to reach people on a four inch screen and also we've gone through this cycle of marketing automation you know we've got people who are using it really really well but there's a lot of people out there who are just using marketing automation products as just glorified email systems and they're kind of over automating everything yeah you know where do we sit now with the over automation of the sales process how can we at scale still get in touch with people on what is a very personal device a smartphone 
and, and have real meaningful conversations with them in the 21st century. It's important to almost split out kind of what's the traditional marketing thing versus the traditional sales thing. To your point specifically, a marketing email or a marketing interaction just generally isn't very personal. It's not very relevant. You know, it's dear first name and blah, blah, blah. I don't think it's the best way to engage with people in the modern world. And it's why, you know, email blasts get, you know, a couple percentage points of open and click rates. The other thing you've got going on on the marketing side is people don't want to get spam. You know, 10 years ago, inboxes were flooded with marketing spam, right? And the good news is we figured out how to block all that crap you know, with spam mm -hmm. filter and legal regulation. So you put those two things together, the desire for an authentic human email and the need to avoid spam. And what's happened, I think, in the last four or five years is the rise, unfortunately, of what I call sales spam. Because sales development people figured out, well, I can get past the spam filter if I send a message that you know, looks like it comes from a person. Right, if it actually comes from my inbox and not from an ISP or an ESP. And for a little while, that was okay because people actually crafted relevant personal human messages. Right? And when you take that time and it does get through the spam filter and you can have an authentic, meaningful connection. It's the last couple of years though, we've seen this like rise of these tools that kind of automate these cadences of sales spam emails, right? How do you blast out more generic templated messages that still happen to come from your inbox? So they still happen to get past the spam filters and you get it and it looks like somebody sent you a personal message. You actually look at the thing and you realize this is just more crappy spam that I didn't ask for. I've gotten fed up with that stuff. When I get that sales spam these days, I hit the spam button, you know, and I'm blocking that person's ability to ever reach me again. And I hope that I'm also making it harder for them to reach other people. I'm sorry I sent you those emails, John. I really am. But hitting spam on me is, is maybe just a little bit harsh. Um, <laughs> you're right. And it's not just the prevalence of these email marketing tools that are, let's say, playing a little bit loose and, and, and fast with the, the rules, right? With can spam regulations, with UK email regulations through the company's Law Act, the really difficult one for everybody is uh, is Casal because, of course, uh, in Canada, you know, you send one email and you potentially could be for every single email that you send responsible for a one million dollar fine, right? So that's the one that everybody gets uh, really touchy about. But in addition to those tools, you've got these other tools that basically allow you to find everybody's email address really quickly, as if. Yeah. Yeah. And they're just adding you to the database. They're not allowing you to opt in. They're just adding you. You know, this is all a big problem for me. And, and the tool providers don't seem to be educating the people who use those tools and telling them this is how you should use this and this is how you shouldn't. What, what do you think of that? Is, is the onus on these tool creators to actually you know, remind people of the regulations? Certainly, if you are a tool creator or a weapons creator or whatever you make, I mean, you have a responsibility to try to ensure that people use your solutions responsibly. So, yes, absolutely. And I think the fundamental problem is that there's too many people out there who still are you know, on the customer side who still believe in volume and not quality. Too many sales managers that are going to their folks and say, well, how many emails did you send today? Right? How many dials did you make? And if you're managing people that way, what are they going to do? Right? They're going to find some tool to send out more emails and make more dials. So yes, I think the vendors have a responsibility to provide solutions that can actually enable people to send authentic human personalized emails. 
You know, that's certainly something I believe. But I also think on the sales side and the marketing side, we need to change how we actually are thinking about quality versus quantity. We've got to recognize that we're in a world where engagement matters and kind of scorched earth, how many emails can you send out is just leaving a trail of people hitting the spam filter on you, as opposed to slowing down a little bit, being a little bit more relevant, you know, being a little bit more personal and actually getting more connects and more human conversations you know, with actually sending less out. So it's the tools and the buyers that both need to be thinking about how do you actually engage in today's world? Absolutely. And I've noticed a big uptick in my text spam. So like this one company just keeps texting me and then I'm like, stop. And then the very next day I get another one from another number from the same company. I literally tracked this company down online and was able to get to an executive on the phone yesterday. I was like, I'm about to go mental. This weapons of mass disturbing me is not awesome. So we got to stop that. Uh, Marketo was very successful. You, you, you set up marketing automation. When did you make that switch in your mind? You said, you know what? Instead of us trying to capture all of these leads, to use a term from Terminus, we need to flip the funnel and we need to go after these specific contacts with account-based marketing. When did you make that flip in your mind and how did you decide to make that transition from Marketo to, to launching Engageo? Well, you know, we built a really good demand gen engine at Marketo. You know, we were driving 80% of all the pipeline for the sales team. And then, you know, fast forward to 2012, you know, it's the year before the IPO. The CFO comes to me and says, John, we'll give you more budget. You can have as much budget effectively as you need. We want to grow faster. So if I give you more dollars, tell me how much faster you can grow this company. And the problem I had was I can write more blog posts, right? I can publish more ebooks, all this great stuff that we were doing, but you know, that doesn't scale linearly. Inbound effectively was tapping out. There's a limit to what you can get off of that channel, and it does not scale with dollars. And I needed new ways to grow the company. So we had to find ways to start reaching outbound, right? So we identified a list of large strategic accounts we wanted to go after, and we started to find ways to go after them. And what I realized is the whole toolbox that I built for capturing all these leads didn't work. I don't use flip my funnel. Instead, I use the analogy of what I was doing was I was fishing with a net because I didn't care which fish I caught. I just cared, did I catch enough total fish? Mm-hmm. And you sweep it through and you know, it turns out you catch a lot of bycatch and a lot of crap you don't want in a net. You know, but you, know, you do lead scoring and you pick out the good stuff that you want. And it can be really efficient if you don't care about who you're going after. But as soon as I had a list of big fish that I wanted, the named accounts that we were trying to achieve, that net strategy just didn't work anymore because those big fish don't just happen to swim into your net. Very true. So we built out a whole new set of things. Spear phishing, mm-hmm. ways to reach out to the right people at the right accounts. And over the years, I realized everything we were doing was not something that Marketo natively supported. In the end, Marketo is a great system for phishing with nets, but the world needed a platform for phishing with spears. You know, and that was ultimately the inspiration behind Engageo. I'm a little bit disappointed now, actually, John, that you didn't go and call it Harpunio. I thought that would have been a great <laughs> name for it. Yeah, it turns out some people have some strong feelings about uh, whaling and harpooning and, and things like that. That may not have been so good it's, for our brand. It's not going to stop me immediately going to see if that uh, domain is available. Yeah. I think what you're saying is, is really interesting because I talk with a lot of CMOs about the pressures that they're under. 
Yeah. And part of the problem is they want to do some really smart stuff. They want to build those lists of the big fish. They want to go after them in a really clever, smart way with high levels of engagement and uh, you know high levels of conversion with just the right people. And then the CFO and the CEO come to them and say, hey, but we've got to hit these numbers. And so they return back to lowest common denominator stuff and start programmatically buying ads all over the place. And, you know, it all just goes back to, you know, I know that if I spend a dollar over here, then I'll get at least a dollar and one cent back. How do we get beyond those pressures? How do we educate the rest of the C-suite to allow the CMOs to do this smart and clever stuff? This is business. You still have a number to drive, right? And CMOs are responsible for their part in driving the number. So I don't want to at all convey that you know, aiming for things, softer things like engagement and whatnot, you know, is a relief from hard-nosed driving revenue. What I am trying to convey is that the mental model of more is better. If one email gets you know gets me this much, then a hundred emails will get me a hundred times that. I'm trying to say that's the broken mental model. Yes, Mr. CFO, we want more revenue, but the way we're going to get there is not just by increasing the same stuff we've done before. We're in a new world where engagement matters, you know. And so, what we need to do is we need to change our tactics, our spear phishing tactics, to get better at focusing on the right accounts and the right people, and then making sure that when we are trying to contact the right people at the right accounts, we're doing it in a way that's going to not how do I spam as many people as efficiently as possible, but instead maximize my chances of actually engaging with the right person at the right company. What the CMOs need to teach the C-suite is that the traditional volume-based metrics are steering us wrong. And instead, we need more quality engagement-based metrics you know, as we measure our journey towards the ultimate goal, which remains revenue. You know, I work with a lot of B2B clients, and it seems like they have challenges even identifying who their top 100 accounts are. That seems to be a, a bottleneck for them sometimes. And it's interesting getting sales and marketing to actually work together more effectively, because in an ideal world, you know, they're all working towards, we want to grow the company, we want to get more customers, and we want to, to impact the customers that we're working with. But sometimes marketing and sales doesn't always work together. So maybe what advice do you have for companies that are looking to build out their top 100 list? And how does maybe sales and marketing work more efficiently together? It's got to start with the sales team needs to feel some ownership and buy-in to the target account list. You know, one of my customers, the marketing team did some, some a bunch of analysis and figured out that a certain category of venture-backed company was a great fit for them. And then they put together an awesome campaign where they actually sent them like Nike Air shoes to the target really? accounts and got like a really, really good response rate to set up meetings at these accounts that marketing thought that it was going to be good. And then they started handing these meetings to the sales team and they kind of got an allergic reaction because the sales team was like, well, what is this account? This is not an account I want to sell. Like, why are you doing this? Mm. And so that success sort of turned into a failure because they hadn't started with getting sales buy-in on who the accounts are. I believe that it starts with sales picks the accounts. You know, marketing can provide information. Like, hey, we believe this is the profile of the best accounts. Here's the accounts in your territory that, you know, may match that, but, you know, you pick, you know, ultimately. And there's a whole hierarchy in how sophisticated you can get at that account selection process, starting with, hey, every rep, come back and give me 25 accounts. 
all the way up to using the predictive analytics vendors who actually analyze you know your prior customers and say hey here's more customers like the people who've already bought you you know but regardless of the methodology and sophistication of the selection process it's got to start with sales they got to feel the ownership and then the second thing i think that needs to happen is recognizing that even when you lit- pick a list of target accounts you're not going to be in a one size fits all world and what i mean by that is your true top level of account based everything where you're going to treat each account truly as a market of one create a rich detailed account profile and understand every aspect of what's going on there and use all that insight to create completely customized interactions works great very very hard to scale so even if you say we've got 200 target accounts you should only pick a handful that are going to be kind of at that that highest level i'll call that you know high research high customization you can then pick another set which maybe is a medium research and medium customization you know and then you should have the bottom of the pyramid of low research low customization so it's pick the target accounts and then assign the accounts to those three different styles and then make sure that marketing and sales agree you know on which accounts map to which style and what does it mean to be a style when we say an account is medium research medium customization it means that marketing is going to take for each one of those accounts an existing white paper and deliver a version of it that has the client's logo on the cover changing out the first paragraph and the last paragraph to make it you know more relevant to that specific account and that's the contract that we're signing up to You know, and when you can get that alignment up front, that's your recipe for success here. Stuart and I have been talking a lot on the news here in the last couple of episodes around VB Engage, around how marketing is evolving with chatbots and AI and machine learning, and there's some really interesting tools that are coming out. And Stuart, do you want to add some additional flavor onto this for John? But I'd really like to get his perspective on that. Literally every single week now, we're seeing major marketing technology vendors add machine learning capabilities. And that's as a stepping stone towards adding full-blown AI. You know, in my mind, this is a great thing for marketers because all of that uh, high-waste, menial tasks that uh, we can just get rid of and have the the machines do a much, much better job of them uh, means that marketers might be able to return to being creative people instead of technologists. But uh, where do we see machine learning and artificial intelligence doing a better job for the sales side of the business? Yeah, I, mean, I think about this one a lot because obviously our vision is to deliver you know, human connections at scale here. I think that the human connection is always going to be important. You guys have probably heard of the, the uncanny valley. Something that's almost human but not quite is really bad. For a long, long time, sales will still be about humans talking to humans. Where I think that AI and machine learning can come in is it can provide a ton of help and assistance to the human in order to make that meaningful interaction happen at greater scale with you know guidance and prompts one analogy i'll use for you you know is the you know executive states person who has the assistant who whispers in their ear right before they meet each person you know about what to say if we could all have that before every interaction that would be really good the other analogy i use is autopilot on a plane you know the pilot's still in charge there's a human who's still making decisions around do we take off or not? And are we going to burn more fuel and get there faster and so on? There's a huge number of micro decisions about what is the actual angle of the flaps that the computer can take care of and do way better than a human. And so I'm personally, especially in the sales world, a big believer in this sort of 
machine-assisted human interaction. I think that's where things are going to go. Couldn't agree more. John, this has been fascinating. Thank you so, so much for joining us. Um, We really, really enjoyed it. Uh, I wish we could go on longer, but unfortunately we can't because otherwise our readers would perish listening to 20-year-long podcasts. But uh, (laughs) thank you so, so much for being on VB Engage today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This has been fun. Thank you so much to John Miller of Engageo for coming on VB Engage with us. Been a big fan of that guy for a long time. The stuff he did at Marketo, pure genius, and he's killing it with Engageo. So great stuff. Congrats to him. Make sure to tune in next week, folks. That's going to be episode 50. That is a special treat. We're going to have all kinds of great stuff going on. Episode 50 next week. We have Noah Kagan on, who was Facebook employee number 30, I believe. He talks about that, what happens when you potentially lose a billion dollars like he did. Crazy, crazy story. You're going to want to tune in for that. We also have a a Huawei device that we will be giving away in a contest coming up. So you're going to want to tune in for that. And also, if you missed last week, we had with us Everett Taylor. He has overcome a lot in his life. He's not even 30 years old yet, but the stories and the path that he's been on has just been incredible. And uh, he's the CMO over at Skirt. You know, as always, we're trying to bring you great stories as well as the news and just what's happening in the world and bringing you some of the brightest minds in the technology space to pick their brains. So for Travis Wright, goodbye. And for Stuart Rogers, it's Ayu Bolvan. We'll see you guys next week.